Hey y'all, welcome back. Today we delve into the tragic and mysterious disappearances of 35-year-old Roseanne Stone Pleasant and her nine-year-old daughter, Valerie Jackson. While both cases are heartbreaking, they are also separate. One has been solved and the other remains open. One involves a web of family dynamics, suspicion, and a community torn apart, while the other remains a family's crusade for the truth. Join me as I explore the details of these haunting stories and the chilling aftermath that follow. I'm Renetta Rideout, and this is Massage and War Murders. It's Tuesday, October 6, 1992, in Spokane, Washington. The day Roseanne was expected to see her daughter, Valerie, per the usual custody agreement. Even though her ex, Brad Jackson, has full custody of their two-year-old daughter, Roseanne still sees her regularly as agreed upon. So when she doesn't show up to see her daughter on the scheduled date, which also happens to be little Valerie's second birthday, her family knows something is wrong. They'd been holding out hope already that they'd see Roseanne on Valerie's birthday, and their hopes continued to plummet with every passing second Roseanne failed to make an appearance. You see, they'd been worried for almost a week. According to an article written by Jeanette White for the Spokane Review, Roseanne failed to cash her October welfare check, money she depended on to live. But when the Stone family reported her missing to the police, detectives weren't convinced Roseanne's disappearance was related to foul play because of her high-risk lifestyle. Like many Black women across the country, Roseanne struggled with substance abuse disorder. In fact, she'd lost custody of Valerie to Brad because of the effects of her addiction. On top of that, she was known to engage in sex work to make ends meet. So law enforcement assumed she was voluntarily missing, immersed in some life of drugs and sex, and they weren't concerned about her disappearance at all. But they did manage to at least interview her family. That's when they learned that the last person to see Roseanne before she vanished was actually Brad. According to the article I previously mentioned, Brad told the police that he saw Roseanne on September 29th after dropping her off at the intersection of Ash and Nora so she could go to the store there. However, beyond that bit of information, I don't know what additional details the police obtained from Brad about his exact whereabouts the rest of the day or who else they interviewed because I couldn't find a single article that mentioned Brad by name or any witnesses outside of Roseanne's family. But like I said, the police assumed she was just voluntarily missing, so who knows how hard they actually tried to find her in those early days of the investigation. But Roseanne's family didn't buy that story for a second. Her mom, Helen Stone, insisted that despite Roseanne's struggles with drugs, she was a caring mom who hadn't missed any of the scheduled visits before and implied it was doubtful she'd start by missing her daughter's birthday unless something bad happened. 
By the way, Roseanne had other children from her previous marriage, and the general census was that she'd never just ditch them either. And what's more, the last time Helen and her husband, Reverend Rufus Stone, saw their daughter, which was about a week before she disappeared, Roseanne was full of hope about the future and looked forward to entering into a rehabilitation program. Sure, it wasn't her first time trying to get clean, but she believed deep down inside that this time would be the time she'd make it, saying to her mom, quote, I know I will this time, end quote. So in her family's hearts and minds, this disappearance is unusual, especially when you couple that with the fact that a close friend of Roseanne and fellow sex worker also disappeared in the spring of 1992 and was subsequently found murdered. Her name was Pamela Ann Norman and she and Roseanne were really close. In fact, Roseanne was the one to identify Pamela's body and her mother said that afterwards she quote, just sat here and bawled and bawled and bawled, end quote. Pamela had been shot in the head and her body was found by loggers in the remote heavily wooded area called Spangle Creek, just south of Spokane on May 28th, although some reports say June 2nd. Either way, she wasn't found until five weeks after she disappeared. She was last seen on April 23rd after having been released from a short stint in jail. When her body was found, she was wearing the same clothes she wore when she left the jail. Although Pamela's murder was solved and her killers charged and arrested for her death, if you can believe it, she wasn't the first sex worker to disappear in the area within that last year. She wasn't even the third or fourth. Pamela was believed to be at least the fifth known sex worker killed. But I won't take us too much further down that rabbit hole because there's a lot to unpack there. However, there was one young woman who was killed and whose body had also been discarded in another wooded area about an hour and a half north of where Pamela was found. This young woman was 19-year-old Sherry Palmer, and she disappeared somewhere around May 1st after she was seen leaving a pay-by-the-hour motel. She'd been staying at the motel the last three days when she walked away from it and just disappeared. Two weeks later, her partially nude body was also found abandoned in the woods. There was a plastic bag over her face and she had been shot more than once. It was a grisly murder and like I mentioned, not even the first. So you'd think with all these mysterious disappearances and murders of local sex workers, the police would be inclined to take Roseanne's disappearance more seriously. After all, they already knew that things weren't adding up, as stated by Detective Don Geese. He told the Spokane Review, quote, Some things going on, but I'm not quite sure what. There's a lot of circumstances that don't add up to her normal routine, end quote. That inkling grew to suspicion that Roseanne's disappearance was so much more than they originally thought. So Spokane PD began publicizing that she was missing. Detectives explored Roseanne's connection to Pam and the other women who were killed, but based on what I read, they couldn't really pin down a solid link between them all. There were some similarities, sure, but not everything about each case aligned. 
so the investigation there didn't yield any fruit that was made known to the public. But there was always the possibility that someone who knew Roseanne was involved. Naturally, the people closest to her would come into focus, especially current and former romantic partners. Meanwhile, with no sign of their sister, Roseanne's brothers, John and James Stone, represented by John, began their own search. They tapped into their well-defined Christian community and made arrangements with several churches to make announcements about Roseanne to churchgoers. They offered money for information, gave interviews, and even hire a private investigator to turn up anything at all that might lead them to Roseanne. While I don't know what specifically was turned up in the family's investigation, John did go on the record for an interview with Forensic Files and stated that not long before she disappeared, Roseanne confided in him that she was uneasy with Brad and feared for her life. According to John, she'd seen a large amount of lie in Brad's home and it worried her. Now, this isn't totally a nefarious thing because Brad was a construction worker and his specialty was doing foundational work. Apparently, having large amounts of lye was pretty common for that gig, but there was just something about it that made Roseanne uneasy. So John tried to convince her to come to his home in Arizona to regroup, but she refused. I imagine she was unwilling to abandon her kids. Despite Roseanne's fear right before her disappearance and the fact that Brad admitted to being the last person to see her, nothing ever really came from the investigation into her disappearance. To this day, she remains missing, with her family left wondering what happened to her. Yes, they have their theories that mostly involve Brad, but there was never any proof that he was involved in her disappearance, so the investigation got cold and then it was put on a shelf somewhere to collect dust for years. And then, seven years later, almost to the day, the investigation into what happened to Roseanne was again brought to the surface when her nine-year-old daughter, Valerie, also disappeared. Valerie, a delightful, compassionate girl, who was described as well-liked by her teachers at McDonald Elementary School. It seems she had a particular dislike for conflict among her friends, so she took it upon herself to mediate disputes. By all accounts, Valerie lived a quiet and happy life with her dad and grandparents in a quiet Spokane Valley neighborhood. However, on a cool autumn day, that would all change and everything that previously seemed right as rain would become disjointed and tragic. On Monday, October 18th, 1999, Brad Jackson hurriedly walked through his house calling out for his nine-year-old daughter, Valerie. Even though they lived with his parents, Karen and Wilbur Jackson, he and Valerie were on their own since his folks left early that morning for work at about 4.30. Valerie was supposed to be in the yard playing with the family dog since she finished getting ready for school early. But when Brad went to tell her it was time to go, she was nowhere to be found. Instead, he found her backpack discarded on their front porch, which was not normal. 
When it was clear Valerie wasn't home, he hit the streets on foot, hoping to find her walking along the sidewalk, perhaps with a friend. As he made his way through the neighborhood, Brad called out her name, but she never responded. He eventually made his way to her school with the hope that somehow she was there, having forgotten her backpack at home. But no matter how hard he looked or who he asked, Valerie wasn't there either. By this time, it was 8.45 and time to report his daughter missing. When investigators arrived, they talked to Brad, who appeared distraught and anxious. However, he was able to give them a statement about what happened that morning. He told them that at about 8.15, he last saw Valerie in the front yard before he went down to the basement to tend to the laundry before it was time to walk Valerie to school. When he returned upstairs at 8.30, she was gone, with only her backpack left behind. So he went back inside, calling out for Valerie, and soon realized she wasn't there either. After laying out an initial timeline of events, Brad even gave them a detailed description of what Valerie was wearing the last he saw her, all the way down to the color of her socks. Now, the police were surprised by how well Brad remembered Valerie's attire because in their experience, parents oftentimes have difficulty relaying exactly what their kids wore in a particular day, let alone what color their socks were. Anyway, there was no delay in police action in this story. With a young and adored child from a tight-knit community unaccounted for, a search party was quickly organized by the police with the help of canine units and more than 40 volunteers. Together, they searched 120 residences throughout the neighborhood. They looked for her in all the obvious places, such as at the homes of her friends and neighbors, but none of Valerie's friends or their families had seen her that day. So the police turned to the Jackson household and conducted a full search of the property. And what they found left them scratching their heads. At first, nothing immediately stood out as weird. The garage had all the expected tools and odds and ends neatly arranged. Even the rolls of duct tape were organized and hung in their places on the garage walls. The investigators searched both of Brad's cars, a Honda sedan and a Ford truck, and all seemed on the up and up. Inside the house, everything appeared normal there too. The kitchen had all the usual stuff, cookware, dinnerware, including a cubby stuffed full of plastic bags. The rest of the house must have looked just as normal because I didn't come across any reports that said otherwise. That is until it comes to Valerie's room. That's where things take a noticeable turn. Pretty much right away, detectives noticed what appears to be blood on her pillow and sheet. It wasn't a lot of blood, but it was odd and out of place. When they asked Brad about it, he offered up a plausible explanation, which was simple. Valerie was no stranger to getting nosebleeds. She'd been known to experience the occasional bloody nose for one reason or another, and Brad said that Valerie had a nosebleed the night before. In fact, it was her bedding that he said he was washing when she disappeared that morning. That could certainly be a possibility, right? But when the police looked around the room and other parts of the house, 
there wasn't any other evidence that Valerie or anyone had a nosebleed. There weren't any bloody tissues in the trash bin, no blood stains on towels, washcloths, or clothing. It seemed like this was the neatest and most easily staunched nosebleed ever. Of course, that didn't really jive with detectives, but they took their notes and pulled back the covers of the bed to see if there was something else to be found. Lo and behold, they found what they thought were red pubic hairs. Now, pubic hair found in the bed of a missing child is never a good look, but there could be a reasonable explanation. For one, Valerie was a curly-haired, red-headed mixed child. With a black mom and a red-head white male for a father, you can imagine that her hair would be curly and also red. Think Merida from the Disney movie Brave meets a 3B fro. That's kind of what her hair texture was like. Short shed hairs can at first glance resemble pubic hair to some people who may not be accustomed to seeing, you know, hair that's not 4A or hair that's not 1A, basically. Or it could have actually been a pubic hair, right? That had been picked up from the floor by socked feet and maybe transferred to the bed. There really was no way to tell just by looking at it, but this finding forced detectives to consider whether or not Valerie was being sexually abused. After all, Brad was a redhead, so was it his pubic hair? You know, that was the question that the detectives would need to answer. With all of this swirling in their heads, they obtained Brad's permission to collect the pillowcase and sheet for further investigation and continued their study of Valerie's room. That's when they found a prescription bottle of Paxil, which is an antidepressant medication. When they asked Brad about the pills, he explained that before they lived with his parents, he and Valerie lived with his girlfriend, Danette Schroeder. Apparently, Danette and Valerie often argued and fought, yes, fought, while they lived there. According to him, they fought so often that Danette suggested to Brad that he get Valerie some mental health assistance, thus resulting in the Paxil prescription. So just a quick pause here. It's so funny to me how the kid was identified as a problem and ended up being the one on pills. I just want to know why in the world this child would need antidepressants to cope with her dad's relationship. It seems to me if the child was that impacted by the relationship, then I don't know, maybe Brad shouldn't be with someone who makes his daughter feel so depressed she needs pills at nine years old. Maybe this is why Danette and Karen, Valerie's grandma, didn't get along. I don't know, but either way, it couldn't be me and mine, but I digress. Anyway, the police took the bed linen and her diary as evidence to be further reviewed. By the next day, October 20th, the detectives told Brad there were three possibilities about Valerie's disappearance. The first was that she was abducted by a stranger, or number two, she was taken by her missing mother, Roseanne, and three, that Brad had done something to her. And yes, the police did entertain the idea that Roseanne had taken Valerie, even though she herself had been missing for nearly a decade. I guess I can't fault them for considering that this could have taken place. After all, that's what good investigations are made of, the exploration and elimination of multiple possibilities. Besides, 
They had come to learn from Catherine Stone, Roseanne's sister, that Roseanne was really upset that she lost custody of Valerie all those years ago. So again, I can see how detectives thought it was worth checking into, but ultimately it didn't pan out as probable or even a likely scenario. And neither did the prospect of this being an abduction by a stranger. No one had reported having heard any screams or seeing strange men lurking around the Jackson property. When they really considered all they had, Brad was the prime suspect. And this only got more obvious when detectives learned that just a week before she disappeared, Valerie wrote in her diary that Brad wouldn't leave her alone in her room. Unfortunately, I don't know more about the context of that statement or really anything else written in the diary, but apparently it was enough to further suspicion about him because on October 23rd, just five days after Valerie's disappearance, the detectives executed a search warrant for his 1985 Honda Accord and his 1995 Ford pickup. However, the search came up empty. There was nothing incriminating or even suspicious in either of the vehicles. What they did deduce is that the whole story about having been doing laundry in the 15 minutes it took for him to notice Valerie was missing was probably a lie. Based on findings after testing the washing machine cycles, they didn't believe Brad was doing laundry when Valerie disappeared. But undeterred by the outcome of the car searches, just three days later, investigators were able to convince a judge to approve a 10-day warrant to place and use GPS trackers on both of Brad's vehicles. So while both cars were in their possession, they embedded those trackers inside each vehicle's electrical system, unbeknownst to Brad. The GPS trackers would provide them with the precise location of the cars every five seconds. Meanwhile, Valerie's disappearance was taking its toll on her family, friends, and community. Everyone was deeply affected by her disappearance, with parents fearful of sending their children to school or even allowing them to play outside. Flyers were posted and a vigil was held in her honor. Her grandma Karen made a public plea on her behalf, begging for Valerie's safe return. And her uncle John was back in the press, trying to raise awareness about his niece's disappearance. But no matter the publicity, the searches, or the thoughts and prayers, Valerie remained missing. By this time, Brad had both cars back in his possession and data was transmitted to detectives about his comings and goings. They were able to see all the many and frequent visits he made to Danette's house, but didn't find evidence of him being out and about searching for his daughter. Then police came to know that Brad had previously told his sister that if it weren't for his mother, who his girlfriend didn't get along with, and Valerie, he'd marry Danette without any issue. Naturally, that only added to the ever-growing cloud of suspicion that hovered around him. And the bigger that cloud grew, the more uneasy he began to feel. He was even described as paranoid by investigators and in other documents, believing that he was being followed by the media and his neighbors. But to be fair, he was being tracked. Also, 
It became clear that he was in the sight of detectives because one of the investigators, Detective Madsen, told Brad straight out that he believed that Brad killed Valerie and buried her body in some remote area in Washington. But the detective also told him that wherever her remains were, he knew Brad couldn't have had enough time to properly bury her, and it would only be a matter of time before the shallow grave would be revealed. The strategy here was that the confrontation with their suspicions would elicit a hasty reaction from Brad. And in anticipation of that reaction, detectives requested another surveillance via GPS warrant for both vehicles, effectively extending it for another 10 days. And it wasn't long before they got exactly what they'd been hoping for. On the morning of November 6th, GPS data showed Brad's truck drove to the location of his personal storage unit not far from his residence. The truck was then driven to Danette's house, where it stayed briefly before driving about 40 miles north on Highway 395 to Loon Lake. Then the truck was driven to a remote and unmarked logging area in Springdale, known as the Springdale site. The vehicle was at that location for about an hour before heading back to Danette's house, where it stayed only a few minutes before it turned home at 4 p.m. Four days later, on November 10th, the truck left the Jackson home at 1.07 p.m., traveling south 20 minutes from Spokane to another remote area known as the Vicari site. The truck stayed in that area for 16 minutes before driving 50 miles north to the Springdale location again, where it remained this time for another 30 minutes. When the vehicle headed back to Spokane, it again made a short stop at Danette's place and then went on to Brad's personal storage unit, where it was parked for five minutes. From there, the truck was driven home. With all this GPS information, detectives couldn't wait to investigate those remote areas at Springdale and Vacari. With Vacari being the closest to Spokane, they started there and found two grocery shopping bags and duct tape with red hair and blood on it. The investigation then moved north to the Springdale location where they found tire tracks that matched Brad's truck and a shallow grave where young Valerie's body lay. Later, the bags, tape, hair, and blood were all matched to Valerie's DNA. The autopsy found that she had died due to homicide by mechanical asphyxia, which was basically defined by HowMed.net as smothering, choking, throttling, or strangulation. Additional tests of Valerie's blood and liver found that while she did have a very low dose of Paxil in her system, it was nowhere near enough to be the cause of her death. On November 13th, Brad's vehicle again went to the storage unit. It traveled to Kelly and Sean Bash's residence where Brad asked to borrow their blue and white truck. Kelly saw that he was carrying a welding mask and told them that he had a job to finish. From there, he drove the Bash's truck to the Springdale location where he was seen by loggers. Fortunately, that area was blocked off, having been designated as a crime scene, so he was forced to leave. He drove to Danette's house in the borrowed truck and told her he strongly believed at this point he was being followed. 
now that the burial site had been located, I'm assuming he was probably shitting on himself. And sidebar, I can't help but wonder if Danette knew what he'd done or what he had been up to. But being that she was never arrested in connection with Valerie's murder, I'm going to assume there wasn't any evidence that she was involved, but it makes you wonder, right? Anyway, after leaving Danette's house, Brad returned the truck to the Bashes, only to forget something really important, his shovel. On that very same night, the police arrested Brad while he drove his own vehicle. Apparently, he was behaving as if he was a danger to himself and others, and he also had a shotgun with him. Because he seemed suicidal, he was admitted to the hospital under psychiatric watch until he was released and subsequently charged for Valerie's murder. Naturally, he denied being involved in his daughter's demise and even tried to blame her for her own death, claiming she overdosed herself on the Paxil. Then he changed his story and said that some guy named Craig may have taken Valerie and killed her. But all of those lies were swatted away as a desperate man's attempt to avoid justice because all the dirt samples from both crime scenes match samples taken from the soles of his shoes, his shovel, and the bed of his own truck. His fingerprints were even matched to the bags found at the Vicari site, you know, the ones that had Valerie's hair and blood on them. At the trial for his murder, he eventually recanted the concocted story about the so-called Craig, but it didn't matter. His web of lies and deceit were ultimately shattered by overwhelming evidence against him. The prosecutor theorized based on the evidence that Brad wanted to get Valerie out of the way so he could freely marry Danette without any problems. If he gets rid of the daughter, that solves the problem with his mother and Danette, and in his warped mind, it must have all been right as rain. In fact, as a little confirmation to this theory, Brad even proposed to her the very same night of his arrest. She was his very first phone call. He didn't even try to call a lawyer. Thankfully, on October 4th, 2000, Brad was convicted of murder in the first degree and sentenced to 56 years in prison. His legal team would go on to appeal the conviction, but still he remains in prison where he damn sure belongs. In conclusion, the tragic stories of Roseanne Stone Pleasant and her daughter Valerie Jackson are deeply haunting and reveal the dark underbelly of their community. Roseanne's disappearance, marred by suspicion and prejudice due to her struggles with addiction and involvement in sex work, left her family with unanswered questions and shattered hopes. Despite her family's unwavering belief in her desire to turn her life around, the police failed to take her disappearance seriously, even though it was clearly out of character for her. Valerie's disappearance, nine years later, sent shockwaves through the community. Her bright and compassionate nature made her a beloved figure among her peers and teachers. The investigation into her disappearance led to a trail of suspicion, but I shudder to think about what little Valerie's life was like living with Brad and the whole Danette situation. I also left out quite a bit of detail as it pertained to some of Brad's defense and 
it amazes me just how much of this little girl's life and privacy had to be dissected and discussed openly in print because of what her father decided to do. It's just, it's horrifying. It's another way in which she was violated. Anyway, while the truth about what truly happened to Roseanne remains a painful mystery, it is believed she was also killed by Brad. Although no proof, including the recovery of Roseanne's remains, have ever surfaced. Valerie's story serves as a stark reminder of the importance of a relentless pursuit of justice and the resilience of families seeking answers in the face of imaginable tragedy. And it serves to remind us that each victim deserves that same type of tenacity. The scars left behind these events will forever linger, a testament to the enduring strength of those who loved and lost Roseanne and Valerie. As always, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode. And if you would, please be so kind as to rate my podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. When you give five-star ratings, it really helps this podcast gain the visibility that it needs to be effective and an aid to our community. And with that, I'll catch you next time on Massage and War Murders. This is a Savvy Sounds production, written and produced by Renetta Rideout.